For the rest of you, you can open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. And before we, before we start, let me just give you uh, a, a tentative plan for what we're going to be doing with, uh, with our Genesis study and then after. Uh, here we'll be in Genesis 35 this morning. Uh, after we're done with 35, which is centered on God's dealings with Jacob, uh, starting next week, I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 37 and start in on the narratives that pertain to Joseph and his brothers. I don't really know how long it'll take us to get from 37 to the end of the book. All right, if you flipped ahead, you'll notice that there are a lot of chapters in Genesis, like somewhere around 50, right? So I don't think we're going to necessarily do every chapter from 37 to 50. Probably sometime in August or September, maybe more than likely, we'll, we'll wrap up Genesis. And then what we're going to do after Genesis, we're going to do a, a series on the church, which uh, I hope will be um, very formative and defining for us as a, as a local body, that going through... Uh, this series that, that, um, that we'll be preparing will give us an idea, uh, a way to be able to comprehend together things like what the church is, who it is that makes a church a church, what a church does, what a church observes, those sorts of things, uh, because the way that you think about the church and what God has prescribed in His Word obviously shapes dramatically what we do on Sunday mornings, what you expect when you come on Sunday mornings. And it's very difficult then, of course, when everybody's sort of reading from a different page to come with the expectation, okay, here's what we're moving towards, here's what we're doing, here's what it means to be part of this local body that's called Edgewood Baptist. So we're hoping that by doing, uh, we, the elders, are hoping that by doing a series on the church, that will actually be a way to uh, encourage one another and to actually create, foster, uh, provide sort of a catalyst for greater unity and fellowship in the, in the body, okay? Uh, let me... Honor your father and mother, son. Okay. I put my phone on airplane mode. I recognized smart comments notwithstanding. I recognized that uh, the last several Sundays, and some of you probably recognized it too, like Merritt seems to be coming up earlier and earlier in the service, but he doesn't seem to be ending any earlier in the service. All right, let me tell you one of the reasons, let me, let me tell you one of the reasons why that is. Where I'm standing right now, there's a, there's a clock up on the balcony, but the glare on the clock prevents me from seeing what time it is. That's the honest truth. I'm not making this up. So what typically has been happening is I'll come up, I'll know about what time it is when I come up, but I have no idea where the time is when we're going through unless I sort of shift from time to time. Every now and then I might get a, a glint or a glimmer of, that looks like 45, that looks like 50, and by then it's, it's too late, okay? So the reason that I have my phone out here is so that having it on airplane mode where it's not going to vibrate, it's not going to make any noise, hint, if you haven't done the same, you can go ahead and do that, but so that if I do wonder where the time is, I can just push a little button and I see. Now, the problem is going to be, now that I've said this, if I run to 12.30 or something like this, y'all are going to take me out in the parking lot and stone me. But this is, this is me at least making the attempt to grow and mature as a preacher. Genesis chapter 35. Follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read Genesis 35, verses 1 through 15. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. 
So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alan Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel will be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. What a privilege to be able to call our Creator Father and to think that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness to your people. Thank you that as a father has compassion on his children, so you have compassion on us, for you know that we are nothing but dust. As we consider your grace and your faithfulness here in this scene from Jacob's life, we ask that you would give us the ability by the working of your Holy Spirit, Father, to be able to see that this is who you are at your core, in your nature, and that we would become more convinced of our security with you, of the certainty of the promises that you've given us, and that we would be compelled to live in the light of those realities. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God is gracious in His faithfulness. That's that's the the thing that eventually I was struck with reading and rereading and studying this passage. Initially, what what I thought, or one of the things that stuck out was the fact that you have here something of a of Jacob coming full circle, going all the way back to Genesis 28, where Jacob, because of deceiving his father and stealing a blessing from his brother Esau, has to flee the land, has to go into a, 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 what would eventually become 20 years of exile. And on his way out of the land, he stops at Bethel, where God meets him, where God assures him that he will be with Jacob wherever he goes, whether it's inside of the land or out, that he will fulfill all of his promises to Jacob. And now we come to chapter 35, and God is bringing Jacob back to Bethel to sort of close off that narrative cycle. The assurances that God gave to Jacob in Bethel on his way out is what God is now going to be reminding and assuring Jacob of when he brings him back to Bethel a second time now that he has returned to the land. So in one sense, you could look at a passage like this and you could say, well, one of the things that's being communicated is that God is, we see it over and over again in Genesis, right? Especially with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You look at this and say, God is utterly faithful. He is trustworthy and reliable. Whenever he says that he will do something, he'll do it. Look at all the things that transpired in the life of Jacob, and yet look, as a way to make it crystal clear to Jacob that God has remained true, he brings him back to the very spot where some 20 years ago or more, 
he had assured Jacob of his favor, and he renews that favor with Jacob here. You, you could look at it that way. God is, is unbelievably faithful, and that is true, 100% true. One of the things, though, that began to strike, strike me more and more as I read this passage was I was looking at how faithful God is to Jacob, but the more I read and the more I reflected, the more I started to see that how gracious God is to Jacob in his faithfulness. Right? Let, me, let me tell you why I think that is. those concepts are related but distinct. All right? If I were to say to one of my children, tonight we'll use up the rest of the sparklers or we'll fire off some bottle rockets or something like that. All right? Tonight comes and I'm tired. I don't want to get up off of the couch. Or I don't want to, whatever I want to do, I, that's not what I want to do. Lee or Casey comes and says, but dad, you said that we could do the sparklers tonight, okay? If I get up off of the couch, grumpy, disgruntled, bearing ill will to my beautiful little daughters because they, have, they are holding me to my word, if I do what I said that I would do, that is me being faithful to my word, true? I said that I would go out with them and that we would do the sparklers, and I'm doing it. I may not be happy doing it. I may actually be irritated with them while I'm doing it, but I'm, I'm fulfilling my word to them, right? That's being faithful. Being gracious while you're being faithful is something about the disposition or the added benefits that come with fulfilling that word. I speak kindly to them. I actually take time to enjoy the company and the activity. Or, they've been running around the house like banshees for the afternoon. They don't deserve to go out and get any kind of a special treat, but I'm going to graciously fulfill my word to them. And you, see the, you see the difference? You can be faithful without being gracious. You can be faithful without showing a particular kind of favor or affection for someone. What I started to see, what I could not get away from in this passage, was how unbelievably gracious God is to Jacob in his faithfulness. And it was not hard to see then how that kind of gracious faithfulness is the same kind of gracious faithfulness that we enjoy as well. So let me try to walk you through. We're probably not even going to get out of verses 1 through 8. Let me try to walk you through how we see God being gracious in His faithfulness to Jacob. And I'm going to, do it, I'm going to try to do it in three ways. See, just push the button to check on the time. I'm going to try to do it in three ways. Number one, we're going to see God's graciousness in the direction that He gives to Jacob. We're going to see God's gracious faithfulness in the fact that he does not deal with Jacob according to his sin. And then three, we're going to see that God is graciously faithful by drawing Jacob to himself. So he's going to, in his grace, because of his faithfulness, he's going to direct Jacob He's not going to deal with Jacob according to his sin, and he is going to draw Jacob to himself. So, 35.1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Let me just say in past, go build an altar there in Bethel where God delivered me from fear or where God delivered me from distress. So, so take note, in verse 1, go to Bethel, live there, make an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Skip down to verse 3. Jacob tells his family that he's going to go to Bethel to make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. That's 2. And then number three, 
Look at verse 7. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So when Jacob is being told to go to Bethel to build this altar, every time it's stated that he must or he will build an altar, closely on the heels of that statement is, I'm going to build an altar there because that's where God revealed himself to me in my fear. That's where God provided for me in my distress. In other words, what Jacob is going to do at the very least, it's more than this, but it's certainly not less. At the very least, Jacob is being taken back to Bethel so that he can remember this is the place where God met me when I was in terror and dread running from my life. This is the place where God met me when I was alone and had no security, no protection, no way to provide for myself. And this is where God met with me to say that He would be my protection, that He would be my provision, and that His presence would be with me wherever I went. Look, here I am back at Bethel as a way to signify the fact that God has done everything that He said He would do. Jacob is going to be reminded of the fact that God is the one who delivered him from fear and distress. Here's the challenge with that, though. Why is Jacob… why does Jacob have to be told to do that? Go back to Genesis chapter 28. This is when Jacob is running, is leaving the land, and he has this vision, this encounter with God, right? The vision of the ladder that connects heaven and earth, angels going up and down. Jacob says, this is, God is here in this place. He names the place Bethel. Listen, though, to the vow that Jacob makes in Genesis chapter 28, starting at verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you give me, I will surely give you a tenth. Jacob vows if the Lord brings me back here, I'm all in. I may be riding the fence now. I may be a little bit sure. But if God actually does this, if He keeps me safe, He brings me back here, I'm all His. This place that I've set up, this stone pillar, I'm going to make this a worship center for the Lord. And I'm going to tithe to Him. I'm going to give Him 10% of anything that He gives me when He brings me back to the land. Skip over to chapter 31, verse 13. This is Jacob recounting to his family one of the things that God has said to him when God appears to him and says, it's time for you to leave Laban and to go back home. Your exile, your time of separation and alienation is done. Go back. Listen to what the Lord tells Jacob in 31, 13. Jacob says that the Lord said to him, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land and return to the land of your birth. How does God identify himself to Jacob in 31.13? As the God of Bethel. You remember, Jacob, I'm the, I'm the God that you met there. Remember where you made that vow, where you said you were going to make a worship center and you were going to give an offering to me? It's, it's time to go back. Jacob goes, he returns, but do you know where Jacob goes when he enters back into the land? Not Bethel. He stops in Shechem. Right, I can tell by the looks on your faces. Oh, Shechem, yeah. Figures. Right? The, the point is simply, he doesn't go to Bethel. He could go anywhere else in the land and it would still be the same. Jacob, we were expecting that on your return, you would go back to Bethel to fulfill your vow to the Lord. The Lord fulfilled His vow to you. He promised to protect you and provide for you and to be with you wherever you went. And you said that if he did that, you would do 
this. Not only is Jacob not in Bethel, we've skipped over a couple of these chapters, he's living in Shechem, and he appears content to stay in Shechem until we get to chapter 35, and God actually gives him a direct command to say, you have to go to Bethel. It almost seems like God is more concerned about Jacob remaining faithful than what Jacob is about remaining faithful. Jacob does not seem to care about fulfilling the vows that he made when he was desperate. What kind of grace comes to a man like that and says, Jacob, you don't have any inclination to do what you told me that you were going to do, but I'm going to have you do it anyway for your good. Why doesn't God just say, oh, I see how it is. I do my part. You don't do your part. Okay, fine. You have your life. You run it however you want. But no, God actually takes the initiative to come to a complacent, self-centered, lazy man, spiritually speaking, and to say, Jacob, you can't stay here. You have to get up and go to Bethel because you made a vow there and it's time for you to fulfill your vow. God is faithful to His people. The way that God's grace is mixed in with His faithfulness is when He shows Himself to be faithful to a clueless, aimless, slothful people. You ever had one of those times in your life where the Lord, either through your own private reading or through a Bible study or through preaching on a Sunday morning where the Lord just puts His finger on you as if to push you or nudge you in the direction that you ought to be going, that is gracious faithfulness. That is God being faithful to you and faithful to me in an abundantly gracious way because more often than not, if truth be told, if He's not directing me and telling me very explicitly, this is what you need to do, this is my will, this is what I have for you, I'm not going to do any of it. I'm not going to be faithful. I'm not going to be dependable. And time and time again, every time that I open the Word, sometimes even when I don't open the Word, when we're, when we're praying or when we're even trying to mind our own business, thinking that God is just going to leave us alone because I just need some downtime, the Lord is so good and kind to say, Jonathan, you can't stay here. This is not the way. Right? And, and many times in which I want to say, I, I wasn't asking Just leave me be. No. If God leaves us be, He is not being faithful to us. If God is not coming to faithless, unfaithful people in grace to say, walk this way, go here, He is not being kind to us. This is what He's doing for Jacob. Jacob is more than happy to stay where he is at Shechem, to not fulfill his vow, to not remind himself of God's goodness to him, but God, because he is faithful to Jacob, says, Jacob, I can't let you do that. I am not going to let you cheat you out of blessing. Get up and go. Hold your place here and go to Isaiah chapter 30. This is, by the way, this is not just what God does with Jacob. This is what God does habitually as a pattern with His people who are all like Jacob. Isaiah chapter 30, skip down to verse 18.
This is God speaking to a people that he has to judge because of their sin and their complacency, their rebellion even at times. They don't want to walk with the Lord. They don't want to follow Him. They don't want to fulfill their vows. And listen to what God says to them. Isaiah 30, verses 18 and following. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for Him. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, and you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold, you will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone. He longs to be gracious. He longs to be compassionate to his people. He is waiting in heaven to respond to their cry. But tell me, what happens when God's people don't cry out to Him? What happens to Jacob in Shechem? Is Jacob calling out to the Lord? Is Jacob looking for God? Doesn't seem that way. And yet, do you see how good and gracious God is to Jacob, where finally it gets to a point where the Lord says, okay, Jacob, I'm not going to wait on you anymore. I'm just going to move. How many times? How many times? Has God been that kind and gracious to us? Not waiting on slow, dull, dim-witted people to call upon Him. But out of sheer goodness and grace, moving ahead of them to say, this is the way you need to go. Come. God calls to Jacob and directs him when Jacob shows no desire to be directed. The reason that God is that faithful and gracious to Jacob is because that's who God is. He remains faithful, Paul says, even when we are faithless because he cannot deny himself. God's grace is also seen by the fact that he does not deal with Jacob according to his sin. God appears to Jacob and says, Jacob, get up, leave Shechem. You need to go to Bethel. You need to build an altar there. You need to worship. And what does Jacob do in response? He responds, right, to his credit. He responds. But what does Jacob need to do in verses 2 and following? Oh, hey, sons, kids, honey, honeys, <laughs> right? He had more than one. Uh, God just, just said that we need to go to Bethel. He's going to meet with me there. So it would probably be a good idea before we have that encounter with God if we get rid of the idols. What in the world? What does Jacob or his family need with idols? 
What do, what do you have an idol for? You have an idol, right? We don't have idols today. We're just talking about the ancient Near East, right? So rest easy. I'm not going to be stepping on any of our own toes. You have idols in the ancient Near East because you think that by grabbing hold of this idol, you can manipulate God in some way to do good things for you. Or, if you have this idol or that idol, you can secure this blessing or that benefit, or you can enjoy life because you're going to get only the best that this life has to offer. What does Jacob and his family need with an idol, let alone idols, plural? What, what is any idol going to give to Jacob and his family that God is not able to give more of? Now, I have no idea whether or not Jacob was actually participating in idol worship. The very best thing that we could say for Jacob is that he is complicit in this idolatry that's in his household. If he's not actually burning incense or saying prayers or trying to placate the false gods, he's perfectly content to let everyone else in his family do it. So you, you understand and you realize that when we, when we take verse 1 and verse 2, not only do we have to reckon with the fact that God is so gracious to Jacob that he directs him where to go to meet with him, even though Jacob is not looking for it, he comes and speaks to Jacob to be graciously faithful to him when Jacob and his household are neck deep in the worship of false gods. This is the husband going to an adulterous wife and saying, why don't you get dressed? We're going to go out on a date tonight. Jacob, why don't you put your idols away so you can come remind yourself that you're devoted to me and that I'm devoted to you. That is unbelievable grace. And you think that Jacob and the people who populated the story of Genesis, you think they're the only ones who deal with idolatry? You think they were the only ones who tried to find blessing, happiness, contentment in anyone or anything other than God? In the New Testament, in 1 John, at the end of 1 John, you know what the very last statement that John makes, after, spending, after writing a letter, talking to, talking to Christians about how they can know that they are children of God, how they can be assured that, that they have fellowship with their Father, that they have forgiveness, and that they are walking with the Lord. The very last thing, the last verse in 1 John 5 says, little children, keep yourselves away from idols. Idolatry is not just an Old Testament problem. It is a New Testament problem. Idolatry is not just a first century problem. It is a 20th and 21st century problem as well. Our hearts are idol factories. We put out idols. We create form and fashion idols at the drop of a hat on a whim. But here is a gracious and faithful God who comes to an idolater and says, put this stuff away. Come with me. Who does that? And Jacob, having been called by a faithful God who is graciously drawing him away, not only says we need to get rid of the idols, he says we need to cleanse ourselves and we need to change our clothes. In other words, we need to get right and get ready to meet with God. Listen, here's one of the dangers of preaching boldly and confidently the faithfulness and the grace of God, right? If you mishear or misunderstand or misappropriate God's grace and faithfulness, 
you are tempted to think that complacency is okay and is not a big deal. It is a big deal. Hold your place here and go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to what Paul says. We should always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification. Let me, just in a nutshell, let me just articulate it this way. In light of what Paul is saying there, we have been chosen for salvation through sanctification. One of the things that we ought to consider and recognize is that there is no one who is being saved who is not being sanctified. You do not meet with God and walk away exactly the same. You do not walk with God and remain exactly as you are. If you think that God is calling and directing and entering into relationship with you and that you have fellowship with God and yet you are not being changed, you are fooling yourself. It is dangerous to sit in a sanctuary on Sunday morning and to sing and to preach and to hear about the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ and to think that because God is faithful I can kick back and do nothing or turn a blind eye or a deaf ear or a dead heart to the things of God and think that that's okay that because God is faithful well he's gonna forgive that's his job Hebrews 12 14 the author of Hebrews says pursue peace with all men and, and pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Do you hear that? Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that we are saved through sanctification. The way that God saves us is by purifying us. Hebrews says if we are not pursuing sanctification, Christ-likeness, we will not see the Lord. One of the things then that we ought to ask ourselves when we read a passage like Genesis 35 and we lay it next to the teaching of the New Testament is when God calls to His people, when God calls to you or to me or to us as a congregation, how do we respond? Do we respond? If you're not moving, if you're not walking, if you're not growing in sanctification, you have reason to be concerned. You need to check and see if you have a spiritual pulse. You do not come and encounter God and not be changed. Listen, I'm not talking about perfection. Certainly not. I'm not talking about that. But there has to be within all of God's children some, even if it's just a flicker, even if it's just a flicker, some sense, some awareness, some realization that what I want are the things of God, that I, I want to move in that direction. Even if I don't know how to do it, even if I hardly ever do it, there's got to be something there that is wanting that kind of sanctification and purification because I want God. And if I don't have that kind of a heartbeat, if there is nothing in my heart and mind that has any kind of inclination in that way, 
I need to ask myself. I need to question whether or not I actually belong to the Lord. Because when He comes, He does not just change the ultimate outcome. He changes the whole process of our lives. He gives us new desires and inclinations and dispositions. And if you don't have that, you need to ask yourself why. It is the most loving, gracious thing for God to do to confront his apathetic children to stir them back to sanctification or to come to those who have tricked themselves or been deceived into thinking that they are God's children. It is gracious and loving for God to confront them and to expose their flatline hearts to say, you have no spiritual impulse. You have no desire for cleanliness. You have no desire for righteousness and holiness. Why do you think you belong to me? That sounds harsh. That sounds off-putting. That is the kindest thing that God could ever do for people like us. So God directs Jacob. Jacob, leave. Walk. Come this way. Build an altar. Even when Jacob is not calling on the Lord, even when Jacob is not looking for it, Jacob, in response, gets up, he purifies, he cleanses himself, and he walks and he goes to meet with God. Last point, number three, God shows his gracious faithfulness to Jacob in that he is drawing Jacob to himself. Now, this should be obvious by this point, but let me, let me point out another feature in this text where what Jacob is being drawn to is not something on the periphery of God, but is God. When Jacob arrives at Bethel, we're told in verse 7 that he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. All right, pause right here. You know what Bethel means from chapter 28? House of God. Jacob comes back to Bethel, and he renames it El Bethel. Did, did Jacob just have a brain freeze? Is he not particularly creative that day? Bethel, what am I going to name it? El Bethel? El Bethel? Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll go with that. What, what in the world? God of the house of God is what Jacob names the place. It's painfully redundant, right? He names the place El Bethel because their God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And by the way, God is revealing himself again. Here's the point. Back in chapter 28, Jacob names the place Bethel. God is in this place. It's the encounter, it's the experience, it's the place, it's the location. Now he comes back and he names it God of Bethel. The difference is, is that whereas before the focus was on the place or the experience, now the focus is being shifted more to God himself. Do you get that? In other words... More important than the revelation itself, getting a vision or getting a word or having an experience, more important than that is that God is there. Listen, let me, in John chapter 14, right, when Jesus says, I'm just going to be, he's talk, talking to his disciples in the upper room, he says, I'm just going to be with you for a little while longer, I'm going to be gone, you're not going to be able to find me, and they're distraught. And Jesus says in John 14, 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's a pretty poor description of the place that Jesus is going to prepare for the disciples, isn't it? I'm going to prepare a place. Well, you know, Jesus, what, what is the place going to be like? Could you tell us something a little bit more about what the place is going to be like? The only thing that Jesus tells them about the place is, I'm going to be there. 
That should be enough. Jacob comes to Bethel. This is the house of God? No, this is where God of the house of God met with me. I met with God. God is what, that is where Jacob is being turned. That's how God is turning Jacob to find his ultimate joy and delight and satisfaction in the person of God, not in the practice or the performance of God. God in and of himself is delightful enough to satisfy Jacob. My heart is so far from those kinds of desires. Right? If you were to ask me, would you take heaven if God was not there? I'd be embarrassed to answer. If someone asked you, would you take heaven if God was not there? What would you say? Would you say, you're darn right I would. Heaven's got to be far better than what I'm living in right now. Or would you say, what? God's not going to be there? Thanks, but no thanks. My, my ultimate goal, my ultimate hope is not heaven per se. My ultimate goal and hope is God. So that Jesus in John 17, when he's praying to his Father, be with us. The, the thing that Jesus prays for, the greatest reward that he can pray for his disciples and for us, because we're his disciples, is to say, just let them be with us. That's the reward. And it is God's gracious faithfulness that slowly but surely opens our eyes to that realization that there is nothing that remains sweet if God is not in it. There is nothing that is desirous if the Lord is not there. One thing I have asked and will ask of the Lord, and that I will see, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. One thing, God. And all of this is to show us that this is what God is doing for his people throughout redemptive history. He is taking aimless, directionless, apathetic, spiritually dull people, and He is directing them in the way that they should go for their good, for our good and for His glory. He is, as He leads us along, as He brings us to Himself, He is purifying us and sanctifying us so that we will no longer be the people that we once were. We are throwing aside the idols of this life, the poor habits, the fleshly temptations and desires, so that we are increasingly more and more ready and eager and anticipating the encounter that we will have face-to-face -face with God Himself and Jesus Christ. And little by little, God, in His mercy and grace, is giving us the ability to recognize that what I want more than a place what I want more than a thing or a blessing is no one or nothing less than God Himself. And that is gracious faithfulness to make us into those people. Let's pray. Father, there is, there is no one in this room who lives up to that work that we see you doing in Jacob's life, the work that you do in the lives of your people. It is only by grace that we have anything good to show.
And the reason that we can continue to be confident and assured that you will continue to perfect your work in us is because the one and only person who ever lived fully in tune with your will, fully delighted and committed to your presence was your son Jesus Christ, who lived in perfect harmony and unity with you without any taint of sin, and who stood in our place to take the judgment that we deserve, the punishment for our sins, so that he could give to us all of his perfections, all of his joys, and all of his delights on credit. Thank you that you give that to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, simply on faith. Father, I ask that if there is anyone in this room today that does not know what it means to hear your voice calling them and drawing them to yourself, who does not know what it means to be progressively sanctified and purified, that your heart or that their hearts would be stirred, would not be able to rest until they come to know what that means and what it's all about, until they come to find life in Jesus Christ. And Father, for the rest of us, would you continue to show us that you are committed to making us into a people who find our greatest joy and delight in communing with you above anyone or anything else. Do it for your glory. Do it so that you look good to us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And let's stand and respond to that uh, wonderful message as we respond that... uh, Our aim, our goal is to be dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne as he comes and as the trumpet sounds one day. Let's rejoice. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, Thoughtless to stand before the throne On Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is Would you sing that again? On Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand God bless. You're dismissed.